When the ruling for learner drivers came out that they have to accumulate 120 hours and keep a logbook, I think there was a sigh for most parents right across the entire nation. And we had four kids to get through uh, that particular process. And I must say, though, that I actually grew to appreciate it. I can't necessarily say what number of hours my confidence was growing, but I did feel that as we, as we spent that time with the, with the children in the car, that, that bit by bit, they were actually becoming competent drivers. And, and I actually wondered after a while, was it actually more for me than it actually was for them, that I would have that, that peace of mind, that, that they know what they're doing, they're being trained, they've been through a whole myriad of circumstances, and, and they're ready, they're ready. Maybe it is more for parents than, than children. But one of the things which they would often, often hear, at least when I was the instructor, was keep a safe distance. Keep a safe distance. It's true when you're driving a car. It's false when you're following Jesus. And our passage today in, in Mark, we, we have, as I said last week, we, we have a a series of stories here that, that actually, frankly, make us feel very, very uncomfortable. This is not, this is not the glory of Revelation. This is, this is not the fun bits, you know, bread and fish being multiplied and Jesus walking on water. That, 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 not, this is not that bit. This is the bit that we read usually around Easter time, but we just happen to be drawing to a close in our series in Mark. This is the bit that we normally read around Easter time, and yes, we all feel uncomfortable. And our approach to these passages can be a little bit like Mark observes of, of Peter back in, back in chapter 14, verse, verse 54, where he makes a, a simple reference to Peter as he follows Jesus to the high priest's quarters. He says, Peter followed him at a distance. Peter followed him at a distance. And all of the events that we're about to read together, there's a sense in which, in terms of eyewitnesses, this is not happening with close proximity to Jesus. This is happening through a compilation of various reports. Even Mark himself, we actually don't know where he was in this minute. The disciples that we know were closest were Peter and John. John, who had some association, we're not entirely sure of what it is, but some association with the high priest and was therefore able to, to get into the courtyard where Jesus was on trial. And he was able to bring Peter in as well. And we've read, read all of that. But they seem to be the disciples that have closest proximity to Jesus and the following events. Beyond that, it looks like this is the, the compilation of, yes, I was there. I was at the back of the crowd. Many, many eyewitnesses gathering to piece together these, these events. And I guess the danger for us is that a little bit like Peter who followed at a distance, we can... We can read this passage and become just that little bit comfortably unengaged because we actually don't like what we're about to read. It's uncomfortable. And I would, I would beckon us today 
to not follow at a distance, but to enter into these events, to come close to Jesus at this time, to draw near, to push in, and to experience life with God. In fact, it's the title of a book which Dan Craig was reminding me yesterday. I've recommended to a number of people, but not read myself. It's uh, by Sky Jathani, who's the, the editor of Christianity Today, and it's simply called With. With. It's a great book. I've, I've read the synopsis and I've started to kind of, kind of just, just prepare myself. I've got about five or six books on the go at the moment, but I've prepared myself for, okay, what's the big picture? I need the big picture. What's the big picture? And, and basically, Sky is saying, often in Christianity, we, we, we live life over God. We live life under God. We live life from God or we live God, life for God. But he is inviting us in this, in this great little book to come and live life with God. Not life over, under, from or for, but life with God. And that's my invitation to us this morning as well. Let, let's not follow Jesus at a distance. Yes, it's an uncomfortable passage. We're going to dig into it in just a moment. But push in, come and be a part of the way to the cross. And let's live life with God and understand what it is that, that Jesus would say to us about life with him from this passage. So Mark chapter, chapter 15, we're going to read from verse 16 through to 32. Mark chapter 15, verse 16 through to 32. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. As you can see, there's a kind of a passage that like to create just a little bit of distance between us and the reality of these events, don't we? It's not comfortable. But let's press in and ask ourselves, what would life with God on the way to the cross look like? Well, verse 16 to 20, we have to face this blasphemous reality of the mockery and the scorn And life with Jesus often means mockery and misunderstanding. Strangely, it means not only is it often that the world will not understand you and see you for who you really are, but you yourselves through the projections of the world will also struggle to see yourself as you really are. Following Jesus will mean mockery and it will mean misunderstanding. What did John see? Well, he saw the whole company of soldiers called together to gather. Some say we're talking hundreds of soldiers who were suddenly brought into the large palatial grounds, the praetorium there, to to observe this, this mockery. A large gathering of soldiers, all there, very intimidating at the very, very least. They put a purple robe on him. Scholars are curious about this because because royalty in the Roman mindset was marked by scarlet. Purple was the color of, of Greek princes and so forth. Why the purple robe? Could they not find a scarlet one or would that have been too close to the truth? They couldn't put a scarlet robe on him just in case... It was just a little bit close to the truth. They were declaring him to be king of the Romans as well, and, well, they couldn't do that. Or was that God's sovereign intervention at this point, that even with mockery and misunderstanding, he would only allow events to unfold so far because there was a reality here that he would not even let mankind mock? I'll come back to that. What else did John see? He saw the twisting together of a crown of thorns on his head to to imitate a wreath, which was more that of a prince than a king. He saw them begin to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews, and then then again strike him on the head and spit on him. He, He saw them fall on their knees and pay homage to him and then lead him out to be crucified. In that moment, that's what, John saw. Years ago, um, I visited Seattle. Um, I remembered from the film Sleepless in Seattle that it rains a lot. And the whole time I was there, three or four days, uh, visiting some some folk from Wycliffe missionaries, uh, three, four days, that's all I remember. It was overcast, cloudy, it rained the entire time. I remember the people I stayed with, and I remember the flight out going home. And I remember sitting in the plane, I had a window seat, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm actually glad to leave. I'm I'm looking forward to going home, but man, what a miserable 
What a miserable few days. Lovely fellowship with the folk I was visiting. What a miserable climate. I'm so glad to get out of this. And then as the plane took off and it pushed through the clouds, it was one of those, if you've ever taken a flight before, it was one of those surreal moments where you went through the bumpy part and it's all cloudy and grey and gloomy. Ah, Seattle. And we burst through the cloud and it was just suddenly so calm and so beautiful. And there was a glorious blue sky and the sun was shining and the, the tops of the clouds were just, just golden. And it was, it was, just, it was just delightful. In those days, I, you know, uh, didn't have phones to take a snapshot of it all, but, I, but it's etched in my mind just how beautiful and serene the view was. And I suddenly realized it was always this way. Seattle's not so bad after all. It's just your perspective. This blue sky was, all, was always here. I just couldn't see it from my landlocked perspective. <laughs> Once we burst through the clouds, it was entirely different. And in a sense, John in this moment, and again, his exact proximity we don't know, but we just know that this was a time where the disciples were not following close. From John's perspective, it might have looked all doom and gloom. But God would take John and he would lift him, as it were, through the spiritual clouds and he would give him another perspective which would change his life forever. He would draw back the veil of heaven and he would give John just a glimpse, just a sliver, just a glimpse of his glory. We call it the book of Revelation. And it would totally transform him. He would never forget it. And when he is charged with the job of leaving one last exhortation to the young churches that were floundering under intense persecution, the book of Revelation is what has held the church firmly throughout the ages. God allowed John to burst through the spiritual clouds. And what did he see in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1? When he was under the clouds, he saw a a big company of soldiers called together in chapter 19, verse 1 of Revelation. Now he sees something different. I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. And they were shouting. Back under the cloud, he saw that they put a purple robe on him. Above the cloud, they, all of a sudden he sees Jesus dressed in a robe and it is dipped in blood, which is the color of scarlet. And I wonder if that's why God, God drew a line in the sand with his mockery and said, no, you're not going to use the color scarlet. That gets used later. Below the cloud, John saw that they were twisting together a crown of thorns. But later on, when he'd be pushed through the clouds, later on, he would see that his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. Below the crowd... He saw that they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Above the cloud, this great multitude were shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Below the cloud, again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and they spat on him. Above the cloud... The armies of heaven were following him and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Below the cloud, they were falling on their knees and they were paying homage to him. But above the cloud, 
John saw that he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's an above the cloud view. That's what God showed John. And when we live life with God, when we press into this passage, we are given a privilege, we are... We are given an awesome privilege of understanding a whole new reality. Yes, on the one hand, day to day, we look like average ordinary folk. And yes, that's probably how we view ourselves in all humility. We're told to have a sober estimate of ourselves. And we often endure mockery and misunderstanding. But what do you see? Do you see just what your eyes see and what you experience day to day? Or are you able to see, are you able to allow God to lift you through the clouds of your life and existence and give you his view? We, we have this theme, which we've been following through for a while, learning to walk on earth as we are known in heaven. How are you known in heaven? How is it that God sees you? Do you need to be lifted through the clouds just a little bit? And to understand that, yes, there is mockery and misunderstanding often in this life, but there is great honor in another realm which God would love you to see and understand. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 19 capture this thought. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And so do you and I. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says. He goes on in, in verse 20, 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Sometimes I think we, we need to burst through the, the spiritual clouds and fog. Yes, there will be mockery and misunderstanding, but know who you really are. I've sometimes phrased this this way, to choose carefully every day the coat which you are going to wear. Are you going to wear the, the coat of your accuser? a clumsy patchwork quilt full of accusations from your real enemy? Are you going to wear the, the coat of your own making, filled with pride and self-justification? Or are you willing to discard those two coats of improper for a true child of God and slip into the righteousness of Jesus Christ, Colossians 3, clothe yourself with Jesus Christ? and wear the coat of his righteousness and his righteousness alone. Choose carefully the coat you wear. Every day we are, we are invited to, yeah, I hear the mockery and I, I, I know the misunderstanding, but I choose to rise above that, to burst through my current experience and to, to walk on earth as I am known in heaven, to wear the coat that is befitting a child of God. Jonathan McCreese, who's 
been with us on a number of occasions, sent me a text the other day. He was talking about the reality of what a joy it was to fellowship together in recent meetings, but going back to the reality of some of the challenges that he was facing. And he said this in his little text message to me. He said, We are as strong as our capacity to believe in the divine order of things, of that which is unseen. Our physical and material reality bear down so heavily upon our ability to walk by faith. He was simply remarking on the the day-to-day challenge we all have to walk by faith, know who you really are. We live in the midst of mockery and misunderstanding, but know who you really are and walk in that. Walk with Jesus. Come close to him on this path because, because there are treasures. And then we come to the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a, it's a passing reference that Mark makes in verse 31 to 26. He says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. There's a whole lot of other detail there, but but it's hard to miss this passing reference to carrying the cross. Jesus himself had said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Is it possible? Is it possible that even now in this moment, disciples following at a distance watched Simon pick up the crossbeam to carry it up to Golgotha because his other disciples weren't there? They were at the back of the crowd. They were following at a distance. Is it, is it possible that when they saw Simon forced to carry this, in their hearts, observing at a distance, did any of them just sort of want to say, that should have been me. I should have been there. I should have been closer. I should be carrying that. Why this stranger Simon? Why him? That should have been me. And I think the answer is, yeah, that's the invitation for every follower of Christ. And maybe actually Jesus' words from earlier on swept back into their minds with great impact. If you want to follow me like Simon, you must learn to carry your cross. Years ago, many, many years ago, 50 years ago, Roy Hessian brought out a little book called The Calvary Road. Um, in it, he, he talks about a passage, a highway, from Isaiah 35. This is the, the joy of the redeemed Isaiah is talking to. Interestingly, it's just before the, the passage where Sennacherib attacks Jerusalem. I spoke on that a couple of weeks ago when we were out of sync in our series in Mark. But this is talking about the joy of the redeemed. And Isaiah prophesied this kind of a road, this kind of a highway. He says, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. 
They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there on this, this highway. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And Roy Hessian in his little book comments on this, the highway. He says, an overall picture of the life of victory, the life of holiness, which is familiar to many of us, is that of the highway in Isaiah 35. And a highway will be there called the way of holiness. Though the highway is narrow and uphill, it is not beyond any of us to walk it. There are many dangers if we get off the road. While we keep to the highway, there is great safety. And then he says, the only way onto the highway is up a small, dark, forbidding hill. The hill of Calvary. It is the sort of hill we have to climb on our hands and knees, especially our knees. If we are content with our present Christian life, if we do not desire with a desperate hunger to get onto the highway, we shall never get to our knees and thus never climb the hill. But if we are dissatisfied, if we are hungry, then we will find ourselves climbing. Do not hurry. Let God make you really hungry for the highway. Let him really drive you to your knees in longing prayer. Mere sightseers won't get very far. But you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What was he getting at there, Roy Hessian? What is he talking about? He's talking about this highway to holiness representing the life that God has invited you to join him on. Life with God. But the way to live that life with God is via Calvary. It is by taking up our cross. It is by living in that reality and having that renewed mind and different way of thinking which understands yourself to be dead with Jesus Christ. Romans 12.2, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is that renewing of your mind? It's, it's understanding the mercy of God and it's understanding the reality of Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ Jesus who lives within me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's living that kind of life. It's taking up that cross beam that Simon took every day and saying, I'm dead. I share in the cross of Jesus Christ. I guess like Simon, yes, we share in that reality, unlike Simon, who was forced to carry the cross, we're invited to every day, every day. That is part of what it means to put on the coat of Jesus Christ, considering ourselves to be crucified. We learn that abiding with Christ is living in that new reality. We are dead. The old is gone. The new has come. Every day. Every day. The abiding life is living in that reality. And so life with God is understanding amidst great mockery and, and so forth, is understanding who we really are. Life with God means every day picking up that cross and reminding ourselves the old us is dead. 
It is now Christ who actually lives in and through us. And then life with God is also understanding that this is a life of perseverance. Verse 27 and and 32. The mocking goes on, and we can can miss a little phrase, a little invitation from the crowd, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law to Jesus. They crucified two rebels with him. Most think that these rebels were perhaps affiliated with Barabbas. It should have been Barabbas in the middle with a couple of his offsiders, but now it's Jesus there, substituted for Barabbas. And those who passed by hurled insults. The mockery continues, shaking their heads and saying, oh, so you were going to destroy the temple, etc." But here's the little phrase I want you to notice now. Come down from the cross and save yourself. And again, later, the chief priests join in that mockery. He can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from his cross. It was mockery. It was a taunt. But it was also an invitation to Jesus. There's an old hymn, isn't there? He could have called 10,000 angels. And he could have. But what held him to the cross? What held him there despite the taunts and the, the goading Come down from your cross. What held him there? It was you. And it was me. And it was his father to whom he was being obedient. But it was his choice and he voluntarily did so. As he said in John 10, I voluntarily lay down my life only to pick it up again. What held him there? You and I, he could, have, he could have come down. We know that, truly, any time he wanted. But I do wonder whether, in obedience to the Father, and did the Father bless him with suddenly a flash glimpse of every single life throughout history, that he would save your face, my face. Did the Father bless him with that, that privilege of seeing everyone who could and would come to salvation through his perseverance in enduring the cross? Perhaps, if I understand Hebrews 12 correctly, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame, perhaps, yes, he did. As we press close to this passage and see what what is there in this for us, what's the invitation? The invitation to live life with God is an invitation to perseverance. There will be many who, who look at our following Jesus and who will come alongside us and goad us to get off your cross. Come down. Come down off your cross, you high and mighty, self-righteous, judgmental. Come on, get down off your cross. What's holding you there, man? Just Jesus. Just Jesus. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes in life we run out of any other good reasons. Why do we do what we do? Why do we persevere? Why? Why? I think it's got to come down to just one ultimate prevailing cause for you and every one of us. Just Jesus. He stayed on the cross for me. I stay the course for him. There are no other benefits. <laughs> it's not some super package that I'm looking forward to. It's just Jesus, just Jesus. I recall Bron and I experiencing this in an unusual way. We, we headed off to Bible college and, and immediately we seemed to be bombarded with people who were, who were saying, I don't know about what you're doing. You, you know you guys don't have, a, you don't have a cent to your name. You don't have a house. You don't have any security. You're going to be a... You know, you, you, you're going to be a burden to other people, faith support. You know, you, you should put that off. Just wait, save, get a house, do the right thing. Don't be a burden to others. Whoa, gee, that was, that was a shock. We just felt we needed to be obedient to God, so we went. Our very first mission trip, very first time overseas whatsoever. With a young baby, 11 months old, couldn't get all of the inoculations, he was too young. And I remember good, godly people coming alongside and saying, don't go. The Philippines, you, you just have no idea what you're going to be exposed to, don't go. Think of your child, think of their health, don't go. We sat and I know we prayed and prayed and prayed about that. Do we, don't we? I don't know. I mean, God, can we trust you? We some point, I figure we're going to trust you for our kids. Can we, can we trust you with this? We feel we should be going. So we went. I still remember one morning getting a call and saying, do you remember visiting Pastor Renchi yesterday? They've just worked out their daughter, who was playing with your son, has typhoid. Um, just watch for any signs. And all of a sudden, we went to prayer again. What have we done? <laughs> Oh, no, the kids were playing together and swapping spit. You know, what have we done? He was good. He was good. And so was little Nathaniel that we didn't even realize was, was being cooked at that very time at nine weeks. God had us covered. When we went to the, to the MV Doulos, taking the family with us, what kind of an education are your kids going to get on a ship? It's a pretty good one, actually. But what kind of an education are they going to get? And again, we just kind of felt like, that's funny, we, we get a word from God which we feel we should be obedient to, and then suddenly it seems to be attacked from all quarters. You know, you'll be a financial burden. Your kids will get sick and die. You know, they won't have an education and they won't, they, they'll come to nothing. And, and it feels like, Come down from your cross. Come down from your cross. And it was in a Sunday service on board the Doulos that the ship's director, Francois Vosloo, was speaking on this very passage. And finally, the penny dropped for us. 
He was speaking on this very passage and he says, all through life, every step of obedience that you take towards God, there will be voices telling you to get off your cross. And you must recognize them for what they are and persevere and stay the course. Life with Jesus means rising above the mockery and misunderstanding and knowing who you really are. Life with Jesus means every day picking up the cross and following him and understanding whose life this really is. Life with Jesus means persevering to the end with that grit and determination that says, just for you, Jesus, but I will not come off that cross. And I feel that for some of you here today, this is a very timely word. You also experience the goading of others. Come off your cross. But God has put something on your heart and it's precious to him. Hear this. Like a seed, it will take careful nurturing in order to germinate. You will need to be a constant gardener. Rocky soil will try to block the roots. Weeds will try to strangle the new growth. Birds will try to steal away the seed. Remember, it's not your seed. It belongs to your Father. Stand firm in your obedience. Do not be swayed. The dream he's placed on your heart is yours to steward, but it belongs to him. No matter what anyone says. And though it may cost you everything, do not come down from your cross. It's life with God. An invitation to leave the comfortable places, to make a declaration I will no longer follow at a distance. I want life with God. I want to press into Jesus. I want to embrace life with Jesus and all that it entails. Anything else would be a watering down of what I was made for. I choose intimacy with God, no matter the cost. That's the reminder. Do not, do not follow at a distance. Do not be an observer of God. Experience him in his fullness, in all of his wonder, in all of his splendor, and in all of his glory. Press in and grab everything that God has in store for you and enjoy life to its fullness. And I want to finish with saying, though it may cost you everything, but no. Instead, let me give you a promise. It will cost you everything. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this reminder to not be a stranger to you, to not follow at a distance, but to press in to experience all that you have for us. Let that be the mark of your people here at the Vine. This morning we, we're given an invitation to, 
to come follow you with all that we are and all that we have. Oh, Spirit of God, comforter, come and refresh our spirits now even as we are quietening our hearts in response. Come. Draw us closer to you. Give us the reassurance that we need, the comfort that we need, the courage that we need to do life with you. Yes, it will cost us everything. But like a treasure in a field, it's worth every cent that we have. It's worth all that we have. It's worth all that we are. Jesus, we hear you say, come, and our reply deep, deep within us is, yes, Lord, we're coming. Yes, Lord, we're coming. We want to respond to you now in, in song. Jesus, let the words not just be be sung off the screen, but let these words actually come from the heart. As we sing them out, we long for them to be something of a, of a foretaste of that great chorus we're going to sing together in Revelation. This is our response to all that you've been saying this morning. Be, would it be pleasing to you? Would it be like a sweet aroma going up into the heavenlies and bringing a smile to the heart of our Father? Let's stand and sing together.